we're investing in the scale up of carbon removal. I'm contributing $20. And I hope all my brethren who take trips, the millions of travelers, I hope they all chip in $20 because altogether we can be a meaningful contributor to the scale up of carbon removal. Hi there, and welcome to the Better Travel Podcast, the show that helps you be a smarter, better traveler. I am your host, travel journalist Paige McClanahan, and I am here to bring you the penultimate episode of season three of the show. So I am super excited to share this episode with you because today we are getting into a topic that has been on my mind a lot lately, and I'll explain why in just a minute. But today's topic, broadly speaking, is climate change and travel. And of course, this is a really complex subject. I mean, it's complex technically, but also, frankly, it's emotionally complex for a lot of people. I mean, you know, I hear from so many people who love to travel and who really struggle with this question about how to think about the climate impacts of their travel. So I want to open up this topic here on the show. I want to unpack things a little bit and look for concrete ways to help us all navigate these kinds of tough questions. So I am not pretending at all to have any definitive answers here, but I do think that today's discussion will help you to understand more about the science of climate change, while also informing you about a concrete step that you could consider taking if you are looking for a way to make a positive change. So my guest today is Christina Beckman. Christina is the co-creator of Tomorrow's Air, which describes itself as the world's first collective of travelers who are coming together to clean carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. So Tomorrow's Air was founded in 2019, and it's incubated by the Adventure Travel Trade Association. So I mentioned that this topic has been on my mind a lot lately, and that's because I recently wrote a story for the New York Times about climate change and aviation. The piece actually went online just last week, and I will put an unlocked link in the show notes if you want to have a read after you listen to the episode. So that article took me a few months to report and write, and it involved more than a dozen interviews with engineers, scientists, airline executives, environmental types, And one of my big takeaways from writing that article was that globally, demand for aviation is expected to double in the next 20 years. So we need to find a big, scalable solution to the climate impacts of flying. As much as we can agonize about our individual choices, which, you know, I think in some ways is important to do, in the long run, those kinds of individual changes will make a difference only at the margins. If we're going to have a real impact on the climate, we need to change. We need to radically change the whole system. So I invited Christina on the show to talk about Tomorrow's Air because I think this organization can help push the needle toward the kind of deep systemic change that the world needs. I was also intrigued by the fact that Christina's organization works directly with individual travelers. So I started my conversation with Christina by asking her what Tomorrow's Air is all about. We are a collective for travelers and travel businesses to contribute to carbon removal with permanent storage. So I learned there's a range of types of carbon removal, trees, soil, ocean, all capture, store carbon for varying lengths of time. What really captured my imagination is technological forms of carbon removal, which are in the early stages of development and yet have 
so much importance, hold so much promise. So Tomorrow's Air is curating a portfolio of carbon removal innovators. So sort of these frontier solutions for carbon removal with permanent storage and creating a pathway for small buyers, such as travelers, to incrementally contribute to the scale up of these innovations. So we have in our portfolio is a company called Climeworks, which offers direct air capture carbon removal and a company called Pacific Biochar, which provides carbon removal through the creation of biochar. Fantastic. So yes, I've heard of Climeworks, but I haven't heard of the second company. I wonder if you could sort of unpack a little bit what this actually looks like, you know, kind of permanently removing carbon from the atmosphere. You know, what happens to the carbon? Like, where does it go? And how do you know that that removal is permanent? So Climeworks is like kind of the darling, I guess, in the direct air capture category. It's a Swiss company they, the way they have sorted out to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere is using these machines, which we call carbon collectors. They're about the size of a small car. They're modular. They can stack. You can, you know, Google them, Google Orca, O-R-C-A. They suck air in with a fan. Within the machine is a highly selective filter material And the carbon dioxide adheres to that filter material and everything else passes out. And then you're left with this very pure CO2, which is then mixed with water, sort of makes like a fizzy kind of water and injected underground into basaltic rock, which is in their plants are in Iceland where there's a great deal of basaltic rock. And actually, basalt underlies more of the Earth's surface than anything else. So we have we have tons of it. It's a very porous kind of stone. So the this kind of fizzy water combination finds its way into the fissures in the rock, and it mineralizes within two years. And there's some great pictures of, you know, like this drill core of that basalt with these little sparkly white salty crystals, and that's the mineralized CO2. Wow. So that's CO2 extracted from the atmosphere and stored underground in a way that eventually turns into rock. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. And the other one you said is biochar, is that right? Yep. The other one is biochar. So biochar is actually a charcoal-like material that is created when waste biomass, if you think of like plant materials like grass or agricultural forest residues, When these are heated in the absence of oxygen, it's called pyrolysis, it creates biochar, which has a very dense molecular structure that is resistant to decomposition. And then when this charcoal can be added to soil, the carbon then can remain in the charcoal or soil for thousands of years. This, when I also learning about biochar, I found out it has its origins in the Amazon 2,500 years ago, (laughs) where the soil is notoriously infertile. So I wrote a little blog on that piece, which I just pulled up. That's, you know, another kind of like back to nature sort of, you know, biochar and the way we create it. Now there are different ways to create it, but it is a return to an ancient technique. Fascinating. And so these companies that are doing this carbon removal and permanent storage, at what sort of scale are they working now? And do they have the capacity to 
increase the volume of carbon they're capturing directly from the atmosphere? Or like, what are the, I guess what I'm trying to ask is, so what are the limits on growth at the moment, you know, and what's kind of stopping it from expanding really quickly? Or is there anything stopping it from expanding quickly? So there's many, many people working and supporting the growth of this and carbon removal with permanent storage will scale. It's what you know, we would say now it's in its infancy of the gigaton scale that we need for carbon removal. I read that for 2022, there's a guy named Robert Hoagland who started, he's tracking carbon removal purchases around the world. Total cumulative purchases in 2022 are less than 0.0006% of the total amount of removals needed. So we are way at the base yet. Okay. So that sounds like we're nowhere. But actually, in 2022, 592,000 tons of carbon removal were purchased. So it's being driven by tomorrow's air is part of this story, but we're not the biggest. (laughs) We're not on the map in terms of big buyers right now. So organizations like Microsoft or Frontier, Stripe, Shopify, these guys are making advanced market commitments to these carbon removal innovators In other words, providing them the guaranteed demand for their service, which allows them to continue to expand their operations. The biggest challenges to scaling carbon removal are, I would say, trust is one of the core. You know, I think in one of our earlier correspondences, you mentioned something about this. And I was thinking about why doesn't it go faster? And it has to do with do we really believe that carbon is being removed and permanently stored? And how do we verify this? And do we have third-party standards for carbon removal? And for a lot of these nascent technologies, the third-party auditing and the industry agreed upon standards are in formation right now. So Climeworks is actually way out in front of this. They're the first to have a third-party auditor for their direct air capture. I think the you know, press on that just went out in December. So the carbon removal community is really, really working hard to put these structures in place. You know, it's really building an industry from the ground up. So there's the providers of the carbon removal, and then there's also all the things that surround it, the monitoring and reporting and verification. So trust is one thing. Another thing that keeps it from scaling really rapidly is cost, the cost per ton. And that's also a big piece of why tomorrow's air is useful and helpful is because we've made, so direct air capture carbon removal can cost 800 to $1,000 a ton. So the average person doesn't necessarily have access to that, right? Yeah. But, I mean, and just, so just... Yeah. So just to kind of put that in perspective, your average flight from, say, New York to Sydney would be, what, a couple of tons of CO2? Well, Do you know that off the top of your head? I mean, I know London to Lima is okay. like five tons. Oh, wow. Okay, so I was lowballing it there. On the order of that, yeah. So if you wanted to pay to extract all of that carbon from the atmosphere at the current price, that It'd would be... probably be more than your flight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's pretty expensive. And just to go back to the trust point, quickly. I mean, I think that's a really important point. And especially coming out of the experience we've had with traditional carbon offsets, you know, Mm -hmm. which, you know, I think it's important that we make clear the difference between what you're talking about 
capturing carbon directly from the atmosphere and permanently storing it and paying to sort of have a forest preserved or, you know, replanted perhaps in another part of the world that these are different approaches to Mm -hmm. taking carbon out of the atmosphere. And this one is much more durable, but people might feel a little bit burned because I know carbon offset seemed like this huge Mm -hmm. promising thing maybe 10 or 15 years ago, and now they're turning out to be not so good after all. Yeah, I mean, there's bad actors, right, who muddy the water for everybody. So offsets, you know, conventional offsets have a place. I mean, it's the credible offsets that support a forest, that support clean cook stoves, for example. These are not not good things to do. They have benefits. I think the way that the carbon removal community would like to be seen is as a complement not a replacement for. And that has been a source of, you know, a lot of debate. It's like an either or kind of mentality mm. that causes people to fight against removal when there's no need for that. Just, yes, you know, I was talking with a small business this morning and she said, I'm supporting this coral reef regeneration carbon offsetting project. And I'd like to add tomorrow's air and carbon removal into our set of climate actions. I was like, yeah, perfect. Mm. I mean, perfect. That's exactly perfect. Do the range of things because we need all of those things. The conventional carbon offsets are typically much cheaper. You know, people would buy those like at $20 a ton or 12, you know, you might see like an extra $5 on your flight for carbon offset. So this is orders of magnitude, a different story. But there's also two things in play here. And one is I'm taking this flight and I want to compensate for those emissions. That's where the conventional offsetting sort of narrative lives. I'm taking a flight. I want to offset it. And, you know, I'm going to pay an extra $20 for that. That is a different kind of problem being solved or need being addressed than the carbon removal is doing, which is more of in the tomorrow's air context, we say invest in clean air. We're investing in the scale up of carbon removal. I'm contributing $20. And I hope all my brethren who take trips, the millions of travelers, I hope they all chip in $20 because altogether we can be a meaningful contributor to the scale up of carbon removal. So it's a different kind of calculus in your mind. It's not like I'm erasing the impact of this trip with this contribution. It's more like I'm contributing to the solution. I want to contribute again and again to this solution. And I want lots of people to also contribute to the solution. Interesting. Yeah. It's great that you mentioned also some of the bigger buyers that have been contributing to this. And one thing that I've learned in reporting this story that I mentioned to you just before we started recording for the New York Times on aviation and climate change, is that the price of this process of capturing carbon directly from the atmosphere is expected to go down significantly in the next sort of 5, 10, 15 years as the price of renewable energy, renewable electricity falls, so should the price of you know this process. So, you know, hopefully with the development of the technologies, as well as the kind of funding that Tomorrow's Air is putting up, as well as other buyers of, you know, this kind of, or as well as other funders you mentioned, you know, hopefully this should become a lot more affordable 
for people in the future if they did want to sort of pay to extract their carbon from their flight to Lima from the atmosphere? I would really love, though, for people to also be just considering the value of a contribution. We've gotten very focused on being able to say, I'm carbon neutral, and I want to offset all these flights and have a carbon neutral flight. And in some way, that has done us a disservice because it's kept us from supporting innovations that we need to scale because they're too expensive to leave you with this feeling of a clean bill of health of being carbon neutral. And so it's like, if you just push that aside (laughs) and think of it in a different way, you know, then I think we could make quicker progress. And in a sense, in that sense, sometimes, I mean, of course it matters how much it costs a ton, but also large corporations are going to have to do big offtakes for their net zero goals. But for the average consumer, if you're thinking in a contribution mindset, the cost per ton, you know, you're not buying a ton anyway. The average traveler is chipping in on a few kgs and being part of the movement, which is so desperately needed right now. Interesting. Yeah. So I'd love to talk to you more about how you're communicating all of this kind of information that we've just been talking about, which can get, you know, pretty heavy, pretty quickly, I guess, you know, how you're communicating that to travelers. And I guess maybe the first step in that is understanding what travelers think about this or what they know about this or don't know about this. So I heard you mention in another podcast interview that you recently worked on a survey of travelers about carbon removal. I think it was with the World Tourism Organization. Is that right? And can you tell me about that survey and what it showed? So many surveys. Yeah, we just actually published with the UNWTO and the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, the UNFCC, and the Adventure Travel Trade Association, this study, which is the first global benchmarking of climate action and tourism. That's an industry study that surveyed what businesses all around the world are doing and destinations. The other study that I think you might be thinking of with consumers, with travelers, we did with Outside Online and we had just under 5,000 responses. So this is like audiences for outside interactive media. So people who read yoga, journal, ski, backpacker, climbing, that kind of demographic. And what we learned in there, like everybody's worried about climate change. So we had two kind of broad age breaks, over 45, under 45. 75% of people younger than 45 agree that it's a big problem. 66% of people older than 45. So You know, there's general agreement that people are worried about climate change, but people under the age of 45 seem to have a better sense of being able to make a difference with their personal spending and actions. They felt like they had power. And we also, one of the other big takeaways in there was that everyone has a whole lot to learn. Like more than half of these respondents didn't know about the range of carbon removal methods or the importance actually of carbon removal, the need to take 10 billion tons of CO2 out of the atmosphere, for example, most people don't really, are not really connected with the scale of the need that we have. So this was a question, have you considered climate change impacts in your travel decision-making? And 52% said never or rarely. And 34% said sometimes. And of those who said 
almost always are always, 18% of them were under age 45. 73% of respondents said they never or rarely changed their travel plans based on knowledge of emissions. What that says to me is we need to embed carbon removal in our travel offerings. I think like the personal accountability sort of, you should travel better, you know, that kind of like finger wagging proselytizing, I just don't think is going to get very far. We have the early adopter travelers who are part of Tomorrow's Air and who are, you know, signing into all the sustainable travel journals and so on. And I think those people are kind of an engine of awareness building and inspiration. I think, you know, the average traveler is just going to keep taking trips and they want to be good people. People want to care. They just don't know how to care necessarily. And they still want to go on a trip and have a great time. And so it puts a lot of the onus, I think, on, or I guess the opportunity for travel businesses to help bake this into what we offer. Exactly. Yeah, no, I think that's such a good point. And it reminds me of something that a professor I interviewed recently for this New York Times story, sorry to mention again. But what he said is essentially, you know, demand for aviation globally is expected to double or even more than double over the next Mm -hmm. 20 years or so. So as important as it is for us to be smart and responsible in our own travel decisions, you know, if we try to go about things in a way where we're sort of punishing ourselves or denying ourselves, well, that's not really sustainable. If we're going to make a change that the atmosphere is actually going to feel, then the whole system has to change. We can't rely on individuals to make these these choices themselves. So I love what you're saying about how travelers who are thoughtful and who do want to do their best and, and make a difference and who are willing to change their behavior in some ways, you know, these people can be sort of leaders or, you know, beacons maybe mm-hmm. for other people out there to help lead the push toward this sort of radical change that the system change that, you know, that we need to bake in to our travel choices, as you say, because that's where we have to go, right? We have mm-hmm. to get there. Without mm-hmm. that, we don't have a choice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the early adopter travelers also inspired travel companies, larger travel brands to take action. You know, so I see what we're doing in Tomorrow's Air with our travel industry partners. You know, the I had somebody was telling me about a convention, like a luxury cruise conference they were in. And, you know, the panel conversations were still very much like, I don't think travelers are going to pay for sustainability. I don't think they care. Travelers aren't ready. And Mm. so the companies will lag as long as they feel like it doesn't matter. And so initiatives like ours, where we're sort of rallying thousands of travelers, then we can show up and be like, actually, no, they do care. And look at these people who are joining these things and spending this money. Why don't you give it a try? I think also there's pressure that's coming back to me now, how I heard about this. So it was a Tomorrow's Air business who was saying, he was like an outlier in that conference, but he was raising his hand. He represents a network of travel advisors. So people who sell cruises. Mm -hmm. And he was like, you know, waving his arms and saying, no, I think we really have to get in here and we should be leaders. And so there are these like voices that are showing up in these rooms and bringing the pressure And that's why I think it's valuable. You know, an individual traveler might say, well, why should I bother? I'm just one little traveler. It doesn't make a difference. But that's kind of the same thing, you know, it's like, well, why vote? I'm just one person. It doesn't matter. 
it really does matter. <laughs> you can, yeah. your, your vote added with other votes becomes representative of a trend and that can be very, very useful. Exactly. Yeah. The more those CEOs or tour operators or, you know, travel industry folks are hearing that from the people they want to serve, you know, their customers or potential customers, the more they'll sort of have that in their minds when they're sitting in that meeting deciding, Mm -hmm. you know, which way to go on on a call like that. So I'm curious to ask you, you know, what kind of responses you've been getting from travelers and people in the travel industry to Tomorrow's Air since you launched it? You know, is this something that you think people are ready for? Are you seeing a lot of demand or are you getting a lot of questions? How's it been going? So in the beginning, there was, I would say, a lot of, huh, what are you talking about? Right? Like direct air capture, carbon removal technology, you know, a lot of sort of like, yeah, just like curiosity like sort of novel curiosity, like, what is this thing? So that was like 2019 was the first time we've had Tomorrow's Air on a board at a conference. Now, you know, three years later, so carbon removal is very much in the news. More people have certainly heard of it. I don't know if you follow like Department of Energy stuff, but like, you know, $3.5 billion is being spent on building direct air capture hubs in the United States this year. So it's in the political dialogue. It, John Kerry talked about carbon removal in one of his climate talks. So it's become more also Joe Biden, of course, the Infrastructure Act. So it's more in the consciousness now. And what we hear from, so our big fans are sort of nature-based travel businesses that have always had sustainability close at heart mm. and are feeling like you know, we want to do more. We're clearly not, climate is still a huge problem and we operate on the front lines of climate change in these wilderness areas and we really want to do more. So this is amazing. Thank you for creating an on-ramp that's affordable for us to be part of the solution. The other traveler group that shows up really enthusiastic is student travelers. We just partnered with a company called CAS, C-A-S, CAS Trips, and they provide study abroad programs for students. And they're really psyched and excited. You know, the, the learning component of Tomorrow's Air is also, so when people purchase carbon removal through us, they are funding the education and outreach that we do, as well as an order for carbon removal directly from the innovators we have in our network. And that resonates a lot with student organizations and travel businesses who see the, you know, the importance of talking about it and educating. That's what the best travel does anyway, right? It inspires you and educates you. So the fact that we have a communication mission and message, as well as the action of removing CO2 and storing it resonates with the kinds of people that are showing up for us now. That's wonderful. That's excellent that student groups are getting energized around this topic. That gives me hope. You know? Oh man, they're all about it. <laughs> it's That gives me a lot of hope too. When people say like, this is such a depressing area, climate seems like such a doomscape. I really don't feel that way. The carbon removal community is full of bright minds and also like career shifters, you know, people who are coming off 
successful business careers or engineering careers are saying, the thing that matters now is this, and I want to put all my energy into carbon removal. You've got a really vibrant community building. And so I do have, I have lots of hope based on that. Fantastic. So, I mean, you touched on this a bit just now, but I'd love to hear like a full answer to the question of, so if someone signs up for tomorrow's air, maybe, you know, giving monthly, say, where does that money actually go? I mean, you mentioned a combination of outreach and awareness, as well as the actual carbon extraction. So a $10 contribution to tomorrow's air, $6 is spent with Climeworks and Pacific Biochar. $3.50 supports our education and outreach. So the kinds of research reports I talked about, the conferences, our social channels that are on a weekly, every week, putting forward travel, climate conscious travel content. And then 50 cents of that $10 is dedicated to our administrative costs. Well, thank you so much, Christina. Um, Best of luck with all of your work. And I look forward to keeping in touch and following tomorrow's air and everything you guys get up to in the weeks and months to come. Thank you, Paige. So I got some more information from Christina after we finished recording, and she told me that if you're interested in joining Tomorrow's Air, there are options ranging from $10 a month to $28 to $75 a month, or you can also choose to give a one-off contribution. But members receive a monthly accounting of their carbon removal order. They also get monthly insights and travel tips, as well as access to benefits from a select community of sustainable travel providers. So this whole question of carbon removal is just one part of the climate puzzle, although I think it is going to be an increasingly important part of the climate puzzle in the years ahead. But it is certainly not the only thing that we should rely on to get us to a world where we have a healthy and livable climate. So as I mentioned at the top of the episode, I recently wrote this article for the New York Times that takes kind of a big picture look at climate change and aviation, looking at how the aviation industry is trying to change and adopt new technologies to reach the goal that it has set for itself of becoming, quote, net zero in terms of carbon emissions by 2050. So if you want to learn more about this topic, I invite you to scroll down to the show notes right now and click on that link, which is unlocked, which means that you can read it even if you're not a subscriber to the New York Times. I've also included links there to the Tomorrow's Air website, social media handles and everything, and to Christina's own personal website. So that's it for today's episode. Thank you. Thank you so much for choosing to spend some time with me. If you enjoyed the show today, I invite you to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or to leave us a rating or review, which really helps other people find us. You've been listening to the Better Travel Podcast, and I'm your host, Paige McClanahan. Jessica Danheiser composed our score, and the fantastic team at We Edit Podcasts edited this episode. Thank you so much for listening. I will see you in two weeks.